This is the second to the last class, one last class uh, next week, and then we start a new Sunday school quarter. The next Sunday school quarter will be like unto our traditional model where we have, um, we'll have three different adult Sunday school classes and then a meet the pastor class. If you have not yet joined the church and would like to know more about the church, I teach a six-week class uh, just introducing you to Redeemer and like love to invite you to that. If you know somebody who would like to attend that, invite them, tell them to come to that. That starts the new Sunday school quarter, but then we'll have three other adult classes and there'll be an insert in the bulletin next week to give you the description for all of those. Thank you for participating in this class. If you need to uh, fill in any of the classes, you can go to our website, look under resources. It's kind of in a podcast format. You can listen to it that way as well um, to these 12 lessons. There are 12 statements outlining biblical sexuality, especially in response to the current pressure related to same-sex attraction and all the other um, issues uh, about sexuality and even gender a little bit as well. Um, The study touches on all of that by giving us a framework, a foundation, a biblical and theological foundation. Um, I listened to a podcast this week from uh, that Carl Truman did on the mortification of spin and he was interviewing a man who is a professor of sociology at Grove City. He's He's written books on the topic of sexuality And um, this man noted that in his interviews with hundreds and hundreds of students, um, that many of the students understand, the young people understand the, the, the don'ts that they hear in church or that they hear about or from the Bible, but they're not very, even evangelical kids who grew up in Bible-believing churches, they don't really know um, the why for the prohibition uh, prohibition against any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. They just know it's, oh, you shouldn't do this. And so you can imagine that doesn't have great effect because uh, the stats for Christian, professing Christian kids aren't much different than they are in the secular world. And a lot of that has to do with the church's parents and the church's lack of really attention to building or constructing a biblical sexual ethic, just to describe what the Bible teaches about it from the positive angle of why this is by God's design, which I'll I'll touch on a little bit here in the intro, but I think it's important to have these opportunities where you're constructing a biblical uh, theology of something so that our young people and we are equipped to interpret things that come our way, not just from a standpoint of, well, I don't do that, I don't do this, or we shouldn't do this, or that's evil, or this is, um, no, it's that there is a, a beautiful design that God has for it, and this is why we want to focus on um, building or constructing an argument rather than just responding with things when the culture comes at us with something, or our students are confronted with stuff that the culture will tell them. So the main reason for this class has been twofold, really. One, for our personal practice and development or in construction of a biblical sexual ethic, and then also um, to be able to give a thoughtful explanation as we teach others, and even a defense at times when we're trying to, to describe what it is that um, we believe. The way that the class unfolds, the different statements, they're supposed to be building upon each other, and so it starts rightfully with marriage. That's the first statement. And the reason why it's important to start there, a little bit of what I was just saying, um, marriage is designed uh, with a very special purpose and God um, gives us those purposes, of multiple purposes actually to it. Um, I like what it says in our confessional standard. It says, marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue, and of the church with unholy seed and for preventing of uncleanness. That's the old term 
uh, old terminology for it, but it's just simply this. These are the different purposes. Again, this is why um, we refrain from sex outside of marriage because it was given a place in marriage. That's where it's designed. When we use it outside of its design purpose, it'll cause you pain. It'll cause other people pain in, in perpetual pain, not like a little pain. Oh, it's no big deal. On the, on, you know, on TV, they, they do it and it's, everything seems fine. In fact, they're happier. That's not really how it feels. That's really not the feeling that you have afterwards. And then we chase after for other feelings because, oh, that wasn't right, so let me try it again. I didn't do it right. And then before you know it, you're so engrossed in, in relationships that were um, superficial at best, and then they became super intimate, and then you have these feelings, and then you can't understand where they... It doesn't go well. If you interview people who have had multiple partners, they're not happy people. Um, they're, they're, that, is, that is a lie. That just is the way it's depicted because it's, it's not being used for its design purpose. Absolutely, God's grace can wash us and can renew us, but it would be really, really derelict if I didn't just warn all of us that when we step outside of that area of design, it, does, it compounds pain in many respects. Um, and, I, and not just emotional and spiritual pain, physical pain too. There's lots of physical trials and risks that are involved with that kind of, with, with taking this outside of its guarded um, environment. Marriage is for mutual companionship, so we can encourage one another in faith and life. That's, that's the front level reason. It's also for procreation so that we can perpetuate the race and for Christians, perpetuate the faith. The, the most common way people come to know Christ is through their family. And so for Christians, as we procreate, that's also a way to strengthen the kingdom of God and for evangelistic purposes. So there are more people who will profess the name of Christ. Also, it keeps us from the dangers of sexual promiscuity that I just mentioned. There's many dangers involved, and, and the marital relationship keeps us from that. It's also a picture of Christ in the church. We see in Ephesians 5, um, we see the image of God, male and female, are, are the roots of that already in the Old Testament, but then you get to Ephesians 5, and you have the fullness of what marriage does. So these are the purposes of marriage. So when you're thinking of terms of why wouldn't I, or why would I refrain from sexual activity outside of marriage, remember the purposes of marriage and then you save it for that or, re or restrict it to that, and that's actually a way in which it does its most good. It provides the most, it provides an intimacy um, among other things, but it provides that in a way that is designed by God and comes with certain um, benefits and promises um, and a sense of security and such that comes from exercising it in, that, in those boundaries. So with that said, we went on to the image of God and talked about how every human being is created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. And so even the genders are important for reflecting the image of God. This is part of his design. We also talked about the fact that we, you are a body and a soul nexus. They're not, I don't know how they relate because I, I can't describe that, um, but God made us to be um, eternal beings with a body and a soul. There's a short period of time where we won't have our our bodies because we die physically, but the ultimate end goal for your eternal existence is body-soul, once again, just a glorified body. So sometimes we, even though we're not, we're not, you know, most of us aren't too happy with our earthly bodies at this point, so we're like, can't we get to that go to heaven? Well, you're going to get a better one, so relax, it's, gonna, it's coming, it'll be much better. It'll be, it'll be like unto the one that Jesus has. Um, and my point in saying this is that we know this is true from the scriptural teaching. So it makes sense if what we do with our bodies will affect us spiritually. And spiritually, um, our spiritual reality affects our bodies. The reason why we're breaking down is because there's still the effects of sin. That's, that's a spiritual connection. 
Um, the body's not evil uh, because God created it, but because of sin, um, it, we, we wear away or we waste away outwardly day by day, but, uh, but we're being renewed spiritually. So the spiritual body-soul nexus, very important to understand that reality. If you're not a believer, it doesn't change it, the fact. So if you go around living a certain way with your body, and take it out of the realm of sex, any way that you might do something with your body that's harmful, it does have spiritual impact. And that's a lot of what people don't understand why they feel the way they feel. It's because they don't get the spiritual, the body-soul nexus, in that when God says this is a one-flesh union, he's talking about the, the physical reality as well as the spiritual reality that happens in only the marital union. So if you practice that outside of the marital union, it's, going to, it's not going to work well. It's going to cause problems and pain and suffering and so forth. Um, and the image of God is tied into this whole picture of who we are, body and soul, and this is important uh, for us to recognize uh, how this is carried out you know, in our lives as we live according to God's word, at least to the, according to the grace that God gives us, bearing God's image. Then we talked about original sin and the reality of um, how far, how far it's, it's utter, it's, it's complete, it's total. Our depravity or the effects of the, sin, uh, of the fall and sin are completely corrupting of us. It says from, in the confessional standard, from the original, this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. And Burkhoff in his theology says, the term does not merely denote those external actions which are accomplished by the means of the body, but also those conscious thoughts and volitions which spring from original sin. So at the original level, corruption level, we are corrupted. That's every one of us is corrupted. So everything that comes up from our corrupted moral center, you might call it, our moral faculty, it has to be questioned. You can't assume anything that comes from you um, by way of a feeling or a thought or an affection or a desire. You should not assume automatically it's a right one. It could be. It's not the same that everything you always think is wrong all the time, like it was in the days of Noah necessarily, especially as Christians. But you have to recognize that you should question your, your feelings. You've got to have a mechanism to decide whether your feelings are right or not, because they're often, more often than not, they're wrong, at least initially. Think of how many times you just know this to be the case. You felt a certain way, and you resisted doing it, even though you felt like doing it, whatever it may be. And then later you're like, man, I'm glad I didn't go with my feelings on that. That would have been disastrous. And that's an evidence of the, the level of corruption we have. Um, we talked about the effects of the fall on our desires, and that our desires spring from this uh, corrupted nature. Um, so you can think of your desires, your affections, um, appetite, whatever it may be, is coming from um, a corrupted, a distorted, a disordered, uh, a sinful place, tainted in that respect. I, I know that sounds so you know, awful. You Calvinist, all you ever do is talk about how bad things are. Well, no, we talk about how good things are right in response to in Christ, and we go to Christ right away, but it's true. It's the true reality of what humankind is like, and we have to know that for ourselves. Um, we just can't trust how we feel. I talked about concupiscence a bit, which is this big word that the Roman Catholic Church used to describe um, desires, to break down desires, to say it this way. You could have a desire, and it's not necessarily sinful unless you act out on it. And the problem with that is, is it opens up all sorts of uh, biblical issues with the way the scriptures describes our hearts and what our, and if you are angry with someone, it's like committing murder and the, the feelings in our hearts are desires. And so we uh, look through the biblical evidence that shows that this isn't a biblical view and it really sets up a bad place for all manner of sin as long as you don't act out on it. 
And we know that the scripture doesn't teach it this way. And if we take that view, it will necessarily lower our view of sin, elevate our view of self or our own strength. And that, that will lead to more sin. That's ultimately what will happen. Um, then we went into temptation a bit and talked about how temptations can be neutral in the sense that you can uh, find yourself in a situation um, like a health situation or a relational situation. It wasn't your fault and do anything, had anything to do about it, but you could be tempted to sin because of the situation. But then there's the other kind of uh, temptation that comes from within. Because we have sinful desires, things become tempting to us. They wouldn't have become tempting if it weren't for our sinful desires. So some temptations are in themselves um, sinful because they come up from within. We talked a little bit about fighting temptation by utilizing the means of grace that God's given us by just simply avoiding, I mean, not simply because it's not always simple, but doing our best to avoid those triggering situations that make us fall or have uh, pressure us to fall into sin, and then also just availing ourselves of each other so we can hold each other accountable and encourage one another. Um, the last bit of introduction before we go to today's topic was the topic of sanctification. I personally think on a doctrinal level, when we're dealing with side B, uh, the side B position, or you're talking about um, these kinds of issues in a controversial way, um, I think it's best to go to the doctrine of sanctification. Because when you understand what God promises to do in the life of someone who's united to Christ by faith, that starts to open up the possibilities of seeing victory in all areas of sin and sinful desire. All areas, not just the area of, of sexuality or sexual practice. And we have hope to see some victory in the areas that bind us, that enslave us in sin. Whatever it is that really you just are sick about yourself because you just keep falling into sin. Romans 7, the things I want to do, I can't do. The things I should do, I don't do. That feeling you have as a Christian, which is a normal feeling in my opinion, I think biblical data backs it up, that that's a normal Christian life, but you're battling it to mortify it, to flee from it at times, whatever the case may be, to, to die into sin and live more and more into Christ. That's the thing that God does in our life and sanctification. So whatever it is you're dealing with, God can help you. He can lessen whatever that is. Whatever the temptation is, he can help you fight that temptation. And that's true across the board. There's no sin that this doesn't apply to. I don't mean to say you won't always still struggle with sin, but God does give us, at the, at the corrupted level, he lessens the effect of the corruption in the life of a Christian to start to see some victory in those areas. And that's important. There's hope for everybody in Christ. I don't mean to say it will be easy or that it's definite and you will never have a problem with this particular sin again. But I am saying that God will give you aid and it is his will for his children to walk in that light by his grace. So that's a bit about um, the doctrine of sanctification. I like the way our confession says it uh, this way. They who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them. So now it's talking about our union with Christ because we are united together with him in his death and resurrection, the benefits that come from it. Then it says, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. So at an effective level, the corruption is lessened. And the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. And they, more and more, they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Here's the test as to whether it's working in your life. If you feel conviction for sin because you realize that it, it, it grieves God, just that sense right there is evidence that God is doing this work in your life. 
you would not have that sense. Now, I'm not talking about guilt because you got caught and it caused some problems. I'm talking about a grieving the heart because you know ultimately the sin is against God. And it grieves you that you sin against God like this. Um, that sense of grief is given to you by God. It's, it's, it's part of the grace he gives you to even recognize it. So be encouraged that even that sense, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It actually means you are in that the spirit's working and there's going to be a battle between the flesh and, and the flesh and the spirit and then all the corrupting things that come against us. So with all of that, it brings us to, to this 11th lesson. There are two kind of reactionary statements in this report. The first one was identity, which we covered last time we met. That is people using um, a sinful desire to identify themselves, people who are Christians, to then use a sinful desire to identify themselves. The, the lack of wisdom that there is with saying, I am a gay Christian. Using a sinful term, gay, which means homosexual, at minimum, it means homo, uh, engage in homosexual activity, whether it be thought or action, um, and using that term to then apply it to your being a Christian who's united to Christ, who's in Christ, like Ephesians says, uh, with Christ. So that's, at very base level, very unwise, and we should, it really gives us the wrong way to uh, approach um, sin in our life. And to identify ourselves in this way also does a disservice to our witness as people who are born again, who are now supposed to be recognized as Christians, as in Christ. So we address that a bit because that's a hot button issue among Christians. Uh, people who trust Christ, who are, who are um, living uh, in a life that honors God insofar as they're not engaging in homosexual activity or sexual activity outside of marriage, but they're calling themselves, they're labeling this, and there's that debate among us Christians about whether that should happen or not. And I made the point too, because it's true in our denomination, that it's really a hot button issue about um, ordained elders, um, that really this shouldn't be that. I mean, it's understandable that you would have this discussion among the laity, especially with all the interaction that you have to endure in the world. But for pastors and elders, you really have to be even you know, more above board in how we present publicly because we're representing something more than ourselves. And so it, it really is wrong, in my estimation, for a, a pastor, an elder, to identify themselves that way. That's a bit of a debate that's happening in our denomination, and so I just remind you if that's why we brought it up. But it's true across the board in how we deal with this. We also said we shouldn't go freak out every time someone comes into the body and has, uses that lingo, because that's the popular lingo. So we should relax, we shouldn't police it um, and go around you know, jumping on everybody for not using the right lingo. I spent some time last week really trying to address that. Um, but we do recognize why there's a lack of wisdom in using it. Now, as we move to this next issue, it's another reaction. The reaction is this. From the Side B movement was developed, and you may not be aware of some of this, it's called the Spiritual Friendship Movement, and this is some of what the statements were addressing. But there's a general teaching that is really helpful for us as a church beyond the same-sex attraction issue. It just has to do with friendship. The Bible says about friendship. Um, but the issue is there was this development of this idea where you could have... Um, you could have a same-sex relationship with someone so long as it wasn't sexual in, in, in activity or the way you conducted yourself, it could really be in many ways just like a marriage relationship, even contractual on some level, as long as you didn't engage in sexual activity. It's more developed than that. I mean, it's quite exhaustive, the, the reasoning for why uh, the people who advocate this, this practice, why they think it's okay. 
So the report tries to do a good job, it does a good job, I think, of saying that's not a biblical way of looking at relationships between same sexes, because that's called friendship. And a real actual biblical friendship, which actually is in terms of familial relationship. Um, either um, father-son, mother-daughter, or sister-sister, brother-brother. And those terms are very important for describing how the relationship looks. And those are good. Those should be part of our, part of our church uh, practice, part of the life of the church. And that's where the general discussion happens that I want to spend some time on so that we can appreciate what we should be trying to cultivate as a church here. Because remember that there will be people who come into our midst, well, there'll be single people all the time, single for whatever reason, single temporarily, single because they're divorced, single because their spouse died, single because they haven't found someone that compatible to marry. Um, it could be any multiple reasons why someone might be single. They're just as important part of the church as anyone else. And so I think uh, what the report cites is when you have an unhealthy relationship with regard to how you engraft singles, it can make it even more difficult if it's a person who's struggling with same-sex attraction. Where do they find relationship and um, the sense of loneliness that they might have? Um, where is that met? And if the church cultivates a really strong community that crosses these demographics, it integrates, then you necessarily set up a place that's great for everybody in their friendships and the way to develop friendships. So with all of that, go to your sheet, and I want to walk through this with you, and you'll see uh, the statements. I think they're very wise. Um, I'll read the statement, and then I'll go back. We affirm that our contemporary ecclesiastical culture has an underdeveloped understanding of friendship and often does not honor singles as it should. The church must work to see that all members, including believers who struggle with same-sex attraction, are valued members of the body of Christ and engaged in meaningful relationships through the blessings of the family of God. Likewise, we affirm the value of Christians who share common struggles gathering together for mutual accountability, exhortation, and encouragement. It's a great statement just on what the church should be um, with, without any specific reference to the particular struggle. Nevertheless, we do not support the formation of exclusive contractual marriage-like friendships, nor do we support same-sex romantic behavior or the assumption that certain sensibilities and interests are necessarily aspects of, gay, of a gay identity. We do not consider same-sex attraction a gift in, its, uh, in itself, nor do we think this, is sin this sin struggle or any sin struggle should be celebrated in the church. Now, if you're like me, a couple years ago, reading the last statement, you're like, what are they talking about? I'm not aware of this. Maybe you are more up to speed. But this is a pretty, um, uh, it's got quite a bit of momentum as a movement within Christianity. And so they're addressing that specific issue in that nevertheless statement, just so you know where that comes from. Now, as you think of the scriptures and you think of same-sex, uh, the various same-sex relationships that are talked about in the sense of, of just how they get along, it's almost always uh, very exclu or explicitly stated about they're a father, son, or a brother, brother. You think of David and Jonathan in that situation. Even Jesus and John, um, the disciple whom he loved, um, and then Paul and Timothy, like a father and a son. So you have brother. It's, it's in family terms that we understand. And that's a, a special and unique bond that we have between brothers and sisters and sisters and such. And, and, we, and that, that should be developed, and that should be um, grown for sure. We see multiple passages that speak in these terms. The Westminster Confession in uh, the ch 25th chapter, second statement says, the visible church, which is also Catholic, small c, or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, 
And this is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So if you have the marital relationships that are part of the, local, the larger church, those have a special, um, a special identification um, with God's institution. They're married. But then the whole church body, are, we're family. So then the way we relate outside of marriage relationships is, brothers, and you're, if you're a woman who's not my wife, you're my sister. Uh, and if you're a man, you're my brother. And so forth. And that, that's how we should think. That's the, the continual way in which the church is described. Um, so that's, that's an important um, reality about the church that we should be working to cultivate. So take it statement at a time. We affirm that our contemporary ecclesiastical culture has an underdeveloped understanding of friendship and does not honor singles as it should. So community life in modern churches, especially in suburbia, um, it's largely lacking um, community life because we all come, most of us live a distance from the church. We're more or less, most churches today are metropolitan churches, if you will. Um, it just depends. But, but for the most part, I think that's true. Redeemer, if you look at the demographics, we're not super far away. We have some that do come from some distance. But in any case, we're not, only in a few cases are we neighbors, like literal neighbors. So you have that challenge of not um, living close together all the time, close enough together to have uh, real community beyond just coming on Sunday. Church is part of what we do. It's not all of what we do. That's how we think. That's not how it was thought of in antiquity. The, the church was central to everything they did communally. But for us, you could come Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday service, and that might be all you connect with when you see people in the narthex before and after. That's why we don't like to jump on everybody when we're, they're loud at the beginning of the service because we know you haven't seen each other and you love each other. We made a big narthex, though, for that purpose. But nevertheless, the point is that we do want to have more community time. But partly, if we're honest, that's because we just don't come more than that. Sunday night, we have, you know, if we have 100 people, we have 500 on a Sunday morning, we'll have 100 Sunday night. Now, I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just saying you have to have some way in which you're developing your relationships with other Christians. And if you're not coming, it's difficult to do that. And you shouldn't complain if you don't feel like you're tied in with anybody. Um, then we have home fellowship groups for the purpose of trying to get people together for more fellowship. Um, Bible studies or activities. These are not just activities to list them off to say we do all these ministries. They're just trying to get Christians together more because communally in suburbia, it's difficult to really develop a close-knit community. And then if you're single, for whatever reason, a church can be even more difficult for you to engage in. How do you jump into these situations? Everybody's married, you feel like. Or everybody's, uh, everybody's got their thing they're doing. And you have more time in some cases, and the, the church doesn't have that many opportunities, you might think to yourself. So all of this sets up this point that it's probably true that we have an undeveloped understanding and practice even of friendship or brotherhood inside the church. Um, and I want to encourage us to think, at least in our context, how we can be better about this. It says in uh, our confessional standards, all saints that are united to Christ as their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his grace. So we're in union with Jesus. Everyone is a believer. Then it says... They are also, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. Our union with Jesus means we have a, necessarily, a necessary union with each other. And we have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obligated or obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, to, uh, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. So we're called to life together in a way that engages each other, that will will meet the needs that we have in many respects for relationship. The marriage relationship is a special relationship. I'm not saying it'll meet that need completely. I don't mean that at all. But you'll meet a lot of your relational and communal needs in the life of the church um, if you are engaged the way the church has set up for being engaged in it. 
Um, Look at the next statement. The church must work to seek, see that all members, including believers who struggle with same-sex attraction, are valued members of the body of Christ and engaged in meaningful relationships through the blessing of the family of God. In the study report, there's some really good um, commentary that happens after the statements. Let me just read you a couple statements that, uh, that made by the committee. It is a sad reality that some Christians in our churches who experience same-sex attraction have found limited support and encouragement in their desire to follow Christ. While the reasons for this vary, one of the most critical components to faithful discipleship is a deep-rooted connection in a local body of believers who can provide challenge, encouragement, and a strong sense of belonging. We ought to grieve any time a person who experiences attraction toward the same sex finds greater welcome and belonging in the secular LGBTQ community instead of the church. And that's 100% right on. It's actually taken from Rosaria Butterfield's work. Um, and, and I don't know how to improve this if the, to the degree it needs improvement, because you only know when someone complains to you about it. Um, but we can assume that, uh, I think it's good to assume we have weaknesses in these areas, uh, especially as it relates to just general communal connection. I'm just saying, honestly, we're not together that much as a church. And when we are, some of it's pretty formal. So I've got to imagine, unless you are individually, familially going out and looking uh, for people who may be single, obviously there's various reasons why people may be single. But think of people that don't have as many natural connections because they're single, whatever the reason may be, and find ways to engraft them, regardless of what their situation is. And if that was a natural action, now I do think it happens a lot in our church. I I know that it does. And single people themselves will seek each other out. But it it does, uh, it could be improved. We could do better at this. And the way you might think about it is, as your family, look for people that you can invite to various things, meals at your house, fellowship time at your house, um, engage people that are single in the church in an integrated way. I don't think separating the demographics is always the wisest thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't have a, a senior saints group or a youth group or a whatever. That's, I think those, there's occasions for that. We have those things. But we don't want to become um, to where we don't mix the groups. You know, we should have a mixture of the youth group with the senior saints at times. We should have a mixture of uh, all these groups. We want to have that. That's, 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 that's the actual communal life that God um, ordained for the church, and we have to be part of that. Um, another statement from the, the statement, our churches must be places where single people who are called to the vocation of singleness or simply currently single can find deep and meaningful community if they are to be places where those who are persistently attracted to the same sex can also find belonging. So it's talking about cultivating a general, a general um, community life that will help, since the focus of the study is on someone who might be struggling with this issue, so they would have support and connection and family ties in the church. Finally, the statement they make, singleness should not be treated merely as a problem to be solved. For some, it's a vocation from the Lord whose expression in the service of the church provides resources that our churches desperately need. The church ought to be a place which proves to be a spiritual family for single people, part of the cure for loneliness of a single life. So I think this is good good um, counsel for us, and we want to think about how we're doing that as a church, and it starts with families. The best way is for families to just, you know, incorporate other folks into your group, especially young, young singles or people wid- who are widows or whatever the main reason. Someone's gone through a divorce and they're on their own. There, there's very lonely times that happen for people, and we don't, you're not, what's the worst they're going to do is say, no, I can't come if you invite them over. Um, but, but try it and, and try to engage. And just dev- as we develop a community, um, I think we'll have more option, opportunity to help people in whatever circumstance they are when they find some support. Notice the rest of the next statement, the likewise statement. Likewise, we affirm the value of Christians who share common struggles 
gathering together for mutual accountability, exhortation, and encouragement. That sentence there is, is just a beautiful sentence on the need for fellowship in the church. This is the essence of koinonia, togetherness, um, the essence of what it means to grow together in, um, in the grace that comes from that. We acknowledge that the scripture, that um, the sacraments and prayer are the main tools God uses to grow your faith, to develop your faith, to make you stronger in Christ. But all of these come in the context of community. Do you know in the PCA, we can't just go do communion. If someone's shut in for some reason because they can't get out of the house, we can't just go over and do private communion because communion was given to the community of believers. Now we can bring a couple elders and a couple members of the church and we can sing a hymn and then we can do communion, quote unquote, privately. But the care for that practice is given because we believe that, these are, that the means of grace happen in the context of community. Some people say the communion of the saints should really be a means of, we should think of it as a means of grace. And I think so long as the first three are active, then yeah, the fourth one, that makes sense. Now, if you don't have the word, prayer, and sacraments, and then you get together, that doesn't mean, you can't call that a means of grace in the same way. But certainly in community together, in the communion of the saints, that fellowship we have together, that's where we're gonna find um, the most help for our spiritual walk. Um, J.I. Packer said, we should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercises of a private devotion. We should recognize rather that such fellowship is a spiritual necessity. That's why online church ain't church. It's fine for a while. It's okay because we had to do what we had to do. And if someone's sick, it's nice that we have what we have. But that is not church. Watching it online is not fellowship with believers. I would shut it down if it weren't for the fact that we, it does, it does serve some special purpose when someone's shut in, and we have some folks in that category, so it makes sense. But I saw some stuff, not necessarily here, because we, we would, I think, would lovingly confront members who thought that that was a replacement for being in church. But I've heard it over and over from pastor friends who have not returned to numbers at all since the Rona thing has all happened, and they have not returned to numbers, and people are telling them with straight faces, well, we don't need to anymore because we just do it online. That ain't church, what you're doing there. You're watching a program. That is not fellowship. In fellowship, uh, that, that's one of the biggest challenges maybe for this next era is people, too many people have thought that that actually counts and is for fellowship. It really doesn't. Um, practically, uh, what can we be doing? Well, leaders should be careful to schedule, assign, design multiple personal touch points in the life of the church. The activities of the programs of the church are only for one reason, to promote the fellowship of the church where the means of grace can be experienced and, and connect and, and um, partake in it. It's not for competing with other churches' ministries, and if they have a singles ministry, we should have one. If they have a handicap ministry, we should have one. No, maybe we should, but the point is, our first consideration is how will this enhance the overall fellowship and connection of the church to grow uh, as a community like this? Gatherings should be, yes, for growing in biblical knowledge. That's true. Studying the word and prayer, but it provides an opportunity for us to talk and relate. Our summer picnics do more for relationship building on the larger level than any other ministry we have. I can only say you're missing out big time. Whatever you're doing Sunday nights probably is not as effective as what we do Sunday night, every Sunday night, let alone summers, when you have two hours until it's dark and you're just sitting with the pic at the picnic table finding out what people, what their life is, what's happened in their life. That, that beautiful fellowship then kind of carries into the year. Summer camp for kids, yeah, I hold my breath too when I sign the liability waiver, but the point is, it gives them a connection at, you know, at a point that then builds relationships when they're very diverse from where they come from. It's an intense time together where they can then build off of that in the relationships. And that's how these events work. They help us 
um, they help us to, to make touch points with each other. Home fellowship groups are the most obvious way that we have built in and design, um, led by elders or people who have been trained under the elders' authority to lead you in um, applying the word of God. The Bible studies of Sunday school before and after worship gatherings, peer group gatherings are fine. I'm not saying we shouldn't have peer group gatherings. Those are part of it too. Um, all of these things, uh, informal gatherings, ways to get together outside of anything programmatic. Now to the nevertheless statement. Nevertheless, we do not support the formation of exclusive contractual marriage-like friendships, nor do we support same-sex romantic behavior or the assumption that certain sensibilities and interests are necessarily aspects of a gay identity. Um, the whole point here is that this movement has been developed through this Revoice um, conference that developed out of St. Louis, where it basically is a side B conference promoting this idea of side B Christianity, which we've been working the whole time to say is an unbiblical position. Um, from that has stemmed this spiritual friendship. Spiritual friendship, um, it, the name merely suggests the classical notion of uh, loving friendship, uh, the philia part of it, which is brotherly. Um, but in the context of LGBTQ Christianity, um, it necessarily involves something more than that. Well, otherwise, um, why not just have those friendships with, with some of the opposite sex? If it, 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 why, why is it a contractual relationship with somebody of the same sex other than there is uh, something related to the same sex attraction connected to it? Um, they'll have a, they have a long, long list of why they say this is okay. Um, but they'll even say at the end of it, you know, really what we're doing in this spiritual friendship movement is really should be commended because we're, we're putting away a certain aspect of our, who we are as people in order to honor God by doing relationships this way. It's very convoluted in my opinion where it's, where it's come to, and that's what the last statement means to address. We do not consider same-sex attraction a gift in itself nor do we think this sin struggle or any sin struggle should be celebrated in the church. There's a bit of a celebrating of, hey, we're all gay people who are oriented this way, but because we know God says we're not supposed to engage in sexual activity, we won't. So we're almost like, uh, we're almost like a monastic order that has a higher level, a higher Christianity to it. And that, that's not true of anything related to uh, a, a sinful desire that we put off, that there's some special celebration. Uh, Stephen Wedgworth said it well. Why aren't the spiritual friendship writers attempting to form a spiritual friendship with persons of the opposite sex? It's rather obvious that it is uh, the particular kind of attraction that they have towards members of the same sex that leads them to their same-sex friendships. Otherwise, the special friendships they propose would be indifferent to sex. They would be friends with the opposite sex, uh, opposite sex persons in the same way as with same-sex persons. But that's not what's being proposed. It's something different. It's a romantic feeling that they want to have um, and they think as long as they don't have the sexual activity, they can call it a friendship. But it's really bringing philia, brotherly love, together with eros, which is sexual love. And it's putting them, it's just, it's, it's just trying not to go so far into the eros as to actually commit an outward act, but it's still the feeling that makes that relationship specific. I don't know how much you're aware of that uh, as a movement. I wasn't too aware of it until I started studying this a couple years ago, but it has picked up some steam in the side B side of things, and so I bring it to you and mention it to you. I think the best way to conclude is just to encourage us on this level of friendship, especially in a situation where we're so stretched, um, even just uh, geographically, that we really have to make efforts to be a welcoming and loving community with each other and then with people that we look around, don't just assume. Just like in a, let Sunday morning be kind of like a bit of a microcosm or a, a picture, a metaphor for the way it is in the, 
you're sitting there in church and you're like, man, I don't recognize that person over there. Maybe I just haven't seen them. Well, how about just go talk to them? Just go say hello to them. I'm going to say everyone in the church line up and go after the one new. We have new people every week. Every week there's a new family. Um, now, sometimes if you go to one service, you may, not, you may not have seen somebody for a long time. Or if you sit up here, Sherry will say to me, are those people? I said, I talked to someone this week who came and saw me. Because sometimes new people make a, an appointment, they'll come and talk. She'll say, who are they? Well, they've been coming, like, I, I say it like this, you know, they've been coming about seven months. But she sits over here, and if you're in the back, it's possible by the time she turns around, she doesn't see them. I know that's the reality. But if the people are around someone who's new, you should really uh, do your best to, to reach out to them on behalf of the church. And then if you're not new, look for new people that you have not had um, contact with, with yet in the church. And just stretch yourself to find those relationships. Um, home fellowship groups kind of forces you into a situation that's good, and then extend yourself outside of that. And as we just think of that mindfully, almost nobody, nobody will be put off by that. Now, if you keep hounding them, you know, to come over to your house, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you know, regularly be friendly towards people, and people will not, um, they'll, they'll not look at that negatively. In fact, it'll start to give them a sense of belonging, and it'll help us all have a stronger sense of belonging, which I think is the, the fundamental foundation for the kind of church we want to be. So whoever's struggling with whatever, they feel they have people here who love them and they're accepted by them. And they could say what's going on in their life and they'll still be accepted by them. They'll be challenged, but they'll still have a sense of um, security here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity that we've had again to study a bit this topic of friendship. I pray, O oh Lord, that you continue to deepen our understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.